Okay, last week we discussed the, in the last two weeks we discussed the first bracha of Shmon Esrei, Berkat Avot. And uh, to summarize very, very quickly, I explained the bracha as being Kishmo Kenu, as its name, Berkat Avot, the bracha of, of first, bracha of initiatives, the bracha of discovery of God, as the Avot are our example of how that, of how that is meant to be done. The next bracha is called, in the Lashon of Chazal, Givurot. Um, how do you say that in English? Acts of might. Wondrous actions. This name is, again, found explicitly in Chazal, Mishneh Rosh Hashanah, which describes the uh, Amidah, the Tefillah of Rosh Hashanah. So the question is, where do you put in Malchiyot, Zichonot, and Shafrot? And the Mishnah begins, Omer Avot, Ugevurot, Vikdushat Hashem, Vikolel Malchiyot Imahem. So the second bracha is called Gevurot. The name makes a lot of sense. As opposed to the name last week, the name Avot, which required us to twist and turn as to why it's called Avot, or why the Avot we even put into the bracha, since it's not about the Avot, it's about God. This bracha is about Gevurot. It lists mighty actions, wonderful actions that God does. As it begins, and then there is a list of actions of God which could very well be called Gvurot. And logically, it makes sense because if the first bracha says who God is, the second bracha says what God does, and those are two prerequisites, I believe, to being able to daven. You have to know who you're speaking to, like his name, who is he, and two, what he does. Because when you're asking God to do things, you have to know what He's capable of. Uh, we speak to God because He is the God of our fathers. We speak to God because He can do these things, many things. And that's why we're going to ask Him, which is the heart of Shemun we're going to ask Him to do things, to do things for us. No problem. Except, one small problem. If I would ask what the theme of the second bracha is, and if my method of answering that question would be the text, textual halachic method, I'll get a very different answer. From the point of view of text analysis, of bracha analysis, I'll say it a little bit better. How, do one, how, how one knows what a bracha is about, what is the second bracha of Shemun Esrei about? The answer is clear. The bracha is about mechayeh ha-metim. It's about the resurrection from the dead. I know this from a technical point of view, because that's the Chatimat bracha, the bracha ends, Baruch Atah Hashem Mechayeh Mitimah, and any single bracha, the way to know in two or three or four words what the bracha is about is to check the Chatimah. To check the ending, the conclusion of the bracha. Every bracha ends with, Blessed are you God, who is this? And this bracha is, who is Mechayeh Mitimah? But there isn't really a lot of room to question this assumption in this particular bracha because in fact, Tchet HaMitim is littered throughout the bracha from the beginning to the end in a manner which can only lead us to the conclusion that it was deliberate. Some of the, some of the, some of the in instances are merely repetitions. They don't even say anything new. The bracha returns time after time again to talk about Tchet HaMitim. So it begins... You are great and mighty, O God. 
specifically, you, you revive the dead. Then we say, you give out life with grace. And you revive the dead with great mercy. Then comes a list of particular things. Three other things. What does that mean? He fulfills his trust to those who sleep in, in, in dust. That means, what is the trust? What is the promise that God gave to those who sleep in dust? The resurrection. If anyone doubts that, I pointed out when we began this series that the way to understand the Bachah is to check from which pasuk are the words taken. The, 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 the skeleton and, and most of the meat of Shemon will be quotations, lifting, cite, citations directly from Sukim. Yishene Afar, those who sleep in dust. There's a pasuk in Daniel, the Rabbim Yishene Afar Yakutsu. And many of those who sleep in dust will arise. Some for eternal life and some for eternal condemnation or damnation. So Yishenei Afar is a technical term. It means the people who are buried. And God fulfills his, his trust to those who are buried. Then we have another section. Who was like you? Master of the mighty deeds. Who are we speaking about? Melech Meimit, he who kills and gives life. Umatzmiach Yeshua. Then comes what's known in halachic jargon as Me'ein Chatima Samuch Chatima. Before the final conclusion, you sum up. And you are trustworthy of to, to revive the dead. There's six different instances of and this raises two questions. One is why is Tchatamitim important to the to the to the to Hiyu Davins? I'm going to speak to God. It's very important that in the beginning I basically remind myself, I address God, I define our relationship as myself and he who redeems the dead. why, why is that important to me now? And since you see the, the extreme effort that Chazal made to, to repeat the phrase here and to burn it into my consciousness, it's quite deliberate. Chazal wants you to daven with a, a burning awareness that you're addressing he who is Mechayemitim, reviver of the dead. But this leads to another question, which I think it's worthwhile for us to address, at least in, in, a, in a few minutes. Why is the belief in the redemption one of the principles of the Jewish faith? In the 13 principles of faith of the Rambam, the 13th is, I believe with perfect faith, that God will revive the dead. And it's not merely the 13th. The entire chapter, the entire 
discussion of dogma, of principles of faith in Judaism, begins with the statement of the Mishnah in Sanhedrin, 10th, 10th Perik, that he who does not believe in the revival of the dead, in the resurrection of the dead, as, 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 as found in the Torah, has no portion in the world to come. Because of that statement, the Bambam sat down and formulated the 13 principles of faith. But that's the only one that's more or less explicit in Chazal. Why is it so important? Principles of faith aren't everything which is true according to Judaism. There's a lot, there are hundreds of things like that. It's those things which, as the mission says, if you don't believe in, then you're out of the picture. You have no portion for the world to come. You're, you're not really, ideologically, you're not really Jewish. All Jews have a portion of the world to come, including sinners. If you're a murderer, you have a portion of the world to come. You have a portion of the world to come. But if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, you don't have a portion of the world to come. These are fundamental beliefs. Why is this fundamental? Let me ask the question in another manner. When did any of my listeners last think about Tchiyat Amitim? Let me ask it in another manner. We'll do a thought experiment. If in the next few minutes you suddenly discovered that in fact there is no such dogma. It was based on a misreading of a bad manuscript of Nesachet Sanhedrin. Someone will find a, a manuscript in the Cairo Gneza, written in the handwriting of Yudha Nasi, where it turns out that you don't have to believe in the resurrection of the dead. How will that affect your Judaism? What would change in your lives other than that you wouldn't be saying every morning, assuming you say it, Anima Nashlima, I believe in a perfect faith that God will revive the dead. Would it change our relationship with God? Would it change our doing mitzvot? Would, would it change anything in the reality, the, the experiential reality of Jewish life? I, I suspect no. At least so it seems to me at first glance. Why is this an important fundamental of, of Judaism? Okay, I'm going to suggest an answer. And based on that answer, I'm going to try to explain the Bechah and Shemun as well. It seems to me, I think you give other answers as well. This is, this is a suggestion. It seems to me that the importance of Tchiyat HaMitim is the following. It is a principle of the creation of the world, of the existence of this world, that human beings have free will and freedom of choice. I would go so far as to say that the reason why the world was created was in order to be a, a stage, you know, there would be an environment in which free will could, could play out. The whole list of Midrashim, the beginning of Breshit, would speak about how when God came to create the world, later on when God came to create man, so he perceived how there would be good and evil, there would be tzaddikim and rishayim, righteous and, and, and evildoers. And the Medrash doesn't mean that God can see the future. That's obvious. The Medrash meant to say that God created the world with full knowledge that the world would be a world of good and evil. And the reason is because free will is intrinsic 
it's the justification for the creation of the world in the first place. There's even one place in the Medrash where there appears the amazing statement that God saw that there would be evil and God saw there would be good and then the Medrash says, day, I do not know whether or not he prefers the good to the evil, evil to the good. Of course we know the answer to that question. We don't know which one is better until the Pasuk says, it's based on the Pasuk, the world was, I forgot how to say Tovavo in English, the world was Tovavo, that's the evil. That's the evil. That's the good. And the end it says, Oh, that's when God says, I like I like the light. I like the good better than better than evil. What, what what was the thought here? The thought is because not that God wants evil. He doesn't want evil. He created the world so that there would be free will, which would choose only good. But of course, that statement means that God knows that there will be evil as well, because there's free will, and both are equally possible. And now I stress the word equally. In order for there to be free will, it has to be equal. If you have to choose between something which is obviously good and beneficial and true and correct and substantial and something which is a mirage, insubstantial, painful and basically non-existent, then of course you have no free choice. Maval explains this as the explanation for the statement of Chazal that when God gave the Torah to Am Yisrael, He lifted up the mountain and held it over their heads and said, if you accept the Torah, then good, but if not, you will be buried on this mountain. Maval says, what is it? God picked up the mountain? He says, no, it means if you add Hasinai and you heard God's voice saying, and you saw the lightning and the kol shofar and the cloud and everything else, then of course you accepted the Torah because you saw that it was true. You heard God's voice. You couldn't even imagine it could be anything else. That's not free will. So God, in order for there to be a world of free will, has to, artificially in my opinion, create a balance between good and evil. Nonetheless, nonetheless, because good is good and evil is bad, because good is existence and evil is non-existence, because good is God and the evil is is not, then in fact, there is an absolute supremacy of good over evil, which we don't get to see in the world. But, eventually, it cannot be that the good will not triumph over the evil. The ultimate triumph of good over evil is Tchiyat HaMitim. Ubila HaMavet LaNetzach Umacha Hashem Elokim Dima Me'al Kol Panim Eventually, God will swallow up death and tears will be the tear will be wiped out from the eyes of all of all of all of all beings from the face of all of all living things so the ultimate triumph of good over evil the ultimate imbalance is guaranteed the rambam quotes in the sefer yada chazaka as those as though it were psak alakha bekfar haftikhana katuv she israel atidin israel lachzor betshuva we have a guarantee that eventually um, repentance will take place and evil will succumb and good will triumph. That belief, I think, is what Chazal were pushing when they said 
מי שאומר שאין תחילת המתים על התורה, אין לו חלק לא מבה. It's a bit of a paradox, it's a big paradox actually. We live in a world of balance of free will, but we have to choose the good. And you have to choose the good because you know that, that it's the absolutely only choice you can make. It's a free choice because the world doesn't support that, that picture. The world seems to say that, you know, good can do, bad can do well also. You can steal and be rich. It's not true that crime doesn't pay. It has, to, it has to not be true that crime doesn't pay, or else you couldn't choose freely, freely to go against crime. You couldn't choose the good. But when you choose the good, it's because you know something which the world doesn't say to you, but you know it's true that this is the right and that is the wrong. That, compa- that when, when you compare good and evil, it's a comparison of what must be to what is totally worthless and impossible to choose. If you don't believe in the ultimate triumph of good over evil, then you aren't really choosing good now either. Okay? That's my explanation for the importance of in Jewish belief. Why is that important for tefillah? I think now we have the we have the key. What I've just described is Tchiyatamitim as being the symbol of the ultimate triumph of good over evil is because Tchiyatamitim is the ultimate symbol of God's victory, God's supremacy over the world of nature. The world is a world where good is not greater than evil. Well, that's not true. We wouldn't have free will, as I just explained. But, we know, although the world is a, is a, a balanced conflict, a tension between good and evil, nonetheless, in, in, in super reality, in the true reality, there's only good. There's only God. And, and evil is b'chol ke'ashan as we said in Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur. If God would appear, then evil would simply evaporate. It would go up in smoke. That triumph of good over evil, of life over death, is also the triumph of God over the world. Because, if you think about it, the ultimate symbol of natural reality, this may sound a little bit pessimistic, but it's true, the ultimate symbol, the ultimate, uh, I would say, condition of the natural world is death. This is true, obviously, in the biological world. All living things die dead things do not come to life. Spontaneous generation does not take place. Not yet. Not in any of our experiences. But all living things will die. The rarest, the practically speaking non-existent in our experience uh, of a miracle is Tchatamitim. Doesn't happen. We know today that it's true also in the non-biological world. Second law of thermodynamics, if I'm counting correctly, the law of entropy says entropy always increases. Organization decreases. Things move towards chaotic, 
In other words, non-organized, non-living, or non-parallel to living systems. The basic, one of the most basic characteristics of the natural world is the path from life to death. Mechayem metim barachamim rabim means that God can at will reverse the inexorable progress of life to death and turn it around. Not just that he creates life, but he turns death into life. Mechayem metim, he revives the dead. And that's why it's such an important, such an important dogma. Not just that God can make lives. God can turn the process, the most basic process of reality, God can turn it around. If we look in this Brach of Shmanesrei, we'll discover that the Givurot, the mighty actions that God describes here, are not mighty in the usual way that we, that we think. For instance, there's a Bracha, which we make occasionally on natural phenomenon, called Shekocho u'givurato malei olam. When do you say the Bracha, praising God whose might and, 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 I don't know, majesty, might and strength fill the world. It's when you see some sort of an overwhelmingly dramatic occurrence. Thunder, lightning, great storms. Something which, which impinges on your usual placid consciousness and just overwhelms it with, with the might of God. What's described in this bracha? Not those kind of burot. Somech no flim. He, he holds up those who are falling. He cures the sick. I mean, it's very impressive that God cures the sick. I can't imagine anyone seeing a sick person get better and making the bracha. We make a different bracha. We make the bracha. But we don't say. Why are these things? What do you have? You have somech no flim. He, he, he breaks. He lets. He, he frees. Those who are incarcerated? Why are they called Givurot? I think they're called Givurot in the sense that Mechayemitim is called Givurot. God reverses the path of nature. The things described in this Bracha don't involve merely God saving you from trouble. They speak about how a certain process has has captured you. You're in the throes, you're in the bonds of a process. Somech noflim. It's an expression which almost doesn't mean anything in particular. Somech noflim, someone who is falling. Gravity is one of the universal, the most universal force of nature. You've begun to fall. God stops the fall. Gofei cholim, I think to Chazam and more to us, sickness means death. A cholda is someone who is dying. His body is giving out. He's losing the power of life. God turns the wheel backwards. Puts on reverse. Mufecholim. Matir asurim. This is something which is even a little bit more distant for us. But it was definitely true for Chazal. And asur, there's a famous expression of Chazal, ain a person can't let himself out of his own jail. Jail to Chazal means someone locked you up and threw the key away. You've been condemned 
to the house of bondage. Another Chazal that says that in Mitzrayim, no Eved, no slave ever got out of, out of Mitzrayim. But God took us out of the house of bondage. It's to reverse a, it's to reverse a, a decree of nature. Reversal is the crucial word here. Givurot means that God is more powerful than His own creation. No one else created the world. God created the world. God can reverse His own creation. And that, I think, Chazal wanted us to know as part of our davening. You don't daven to God because He has the ability to give you food. My supermarket has more or less somewhat the ability to give me food. It's not that God could provide some or all of what I happen to need. You ask maybe for simple, you might ask only for food, you can ask for simple things, but you're addressing He who can overturn the course of nature, overturn the world itself, even onto reviving the dead, totally eliminating the natural course of nature. And death will be swallowed up for all eternity. If you're diving to God and He's less than that, He's within the world. After all, idolatry, people pray to gods, small g, who in their understanding were capable of giving them answers. And frankly, if you uh, just sort of assimilate the gods of Greece with the forces of nature, so people pray to the god of the clouds, or they pray to the cloud itself. Clouds do give water. And if they can listen and you pray to them, they might give you water in response to your prayer. It's not about Azar because clouds don't have ears. So, but it's not because you shouldn't pray to clouds. Because clouds are in nature. And the God to whom we pray is above and beyond nature. He can overturn nature. He could make it rain even if the natural process is one of dryness. He doesn't pluck the water out of the cloud. He doesn't pluck the food out of the ground and give it to me. He decrees that now it will come to me. I mentioned in the very first uh, episode of this series that the attitude of Avodat Hashem, total dependence, total dependence, there's no one else to whom we can turn. That exclusivity, that uniqueness of God is expressed now by the term Givurot, And I think that's also why we pick as the theme of the Bacha, not just the other examples, but the major theme of the Bacha, something which we've never seen, because it's truly unique, and therefore makes my praying to God an expression of that uniqueness. I think this explains two unusual features of this Bacha. What is the word emunah, faith? The Bacha a number of times refers to faith. God fulfills his faith, his trust to those who sleep in dust. 
ונאמן אתה לחיות מתם. And you are trustworthy to us. You are faithful to eventually resurrect the dead. What is the connection between faith and gevurot, and this particular gevurah called tchiat amitim? I think the answer is, I just said the answer, I think the answer is simple. My natural eyes, the eyes that I was born with, my regular vision, doesn't perceive tchiat amitim. It can't perceive tchiat amitim. The other examples were, were not as good because you might think that, you know, you can't cure sick people. But no one has ever seen, no one alive has ever seen Tchatamitim. And frankly, in Jewish history, there's one example. There, there is one example. Uh, Eliyahu, two examples. Eliyahu and, and, and Elisha. But basically, if, if, if I would say to you, it, if, if, if you were in big trouble and I told you to go pray, you would pray for a miracle. No one ever prays for Tchatamitim. If someone dies, we don't turn to God and say, bring him back. God could do it. It's just not part of our experience. It's not meant to be part of our experience. Now, in order to praise God, you have to experience what you're praising God for. You can't praise God for something that you haven't seen. That's a yisod in halacha. That's the principle of halacha. You only, you only say b'kat when you've eaten something. You only say when you've seen the thunder. You've seen, excuse me, seen the lightning, heard the thunder. The eye that sees Tchetamitim is the eye of faith. We know that God will revive the dead because we believe that God will revive the dead. I'm, in, I'm imposing on myself to see with the eyes of Emunah, the eyes of faith. Since Baruch is about Tchetamitim, then what we're saying is not Atam Mechayemitim, you are Mechayemitim, the way I'll say other things, you are this, you are that, but I'm saying, I know that it's true because I have faith, because you are faithful to what you have promised. That's point number one. Point number two, what is the meaning, what is the, what is the tafkid, what is, what is the, the, the role in terms of the literary role of the sentence, It's an exclamation. Not, it's not straight shevach, straight praise. You are wonderful. It's saying, who is like you? Master of mighty deeds. And who can compare to you? What, why are we exclaiming all of a sudden? I think the answer is because the previous line was, All of a sudden, our eyes have been opened. We've adopted, we've placed the glasses, the spectacles of faith on our eyes and we see colors we never saw before. All of a sudden we see the world being reversed. Till now we saw the world. We saw great things in the world. We even saw that God could use the powers of the world to produce what He wants to produce. God could produce grain out of the earth. But that's a power that's in the world, but God's responsible for it. All of a sudden I saw the resurrection of the dead. I saw because Mikayim emunato, the eyes of faith I saw the resurrection of the dead. And that elicits for me a, an exclamation. Exclamation point, exclamation point. Who is like you? No one is like you. Nothing is like you. It's unique. Nothing in the world is like God because God is not in the world but He's over and above and beyond 
and transcend into the entire world. This won't be found any place else in Shemonesia because the rest of Shemonesia will deal with the world. And we'll be thankful for God. We won't, we won't fall off our feet in astonishment. But here we've seen that which we couldn't see a second ago. Which, which it's impossible to see with the eyes which we have been granted normally to see. And that opening of the eyes, so to speak, the opening of our eyes, leads us to say, One quick question, which undoubtedly many of you are asking. Okay, so I explained, uh, God brings rain. Isn't that isn't that a power of God within the natural world? It's not overcoming a, the world. When it rains, that's overcoming. The world is, is by nature dry and God brings Geshem, God brings rain. It's a very good question. And I'm not going to really answer it to my own satisfaction. But I'll simply point out that Chazal think the answer is yes. Rain is a totally non-natural occurrence. It's expressed in a number of midrashim. I'll mention one of the most famous ones, which is also alluded to in the commentary of Yudu Rabbi Yaka, the teacher of the Ramban, to this bracha. He explains why it says, He says, he quotes a midrash that says, in only two places does it say that God opens. He needs a key. One is, Pasuk in Dvarim, Yiftach Hashem et Tov, God will open up the heavens to give you rain. And the second one is the Pasuk in Yechezkel, when I open up your graves, in the chapter in Yechezkel of the dry bones, I will open up your graves and take you out of your graves. And what it means, it's more than opening, because Chazal apparently referring to a key. Another Medrash that says, God gave out the keys to run the world to the angels, except for three key of resurrection, a key which isn't mentioned here, the key of birth, and the key of rain. Chazal have a conception, which I think is connected to the Pasha in the Torah that says that there's the upper waters and the lower waters, and the rain is really above the heavens, it's above the Rakia. The water comes from beyond, it's not really in the world. How are we supposed to understand that in terms of what we know about nature? I'm not 100% sure. But despite what we were taught in high school about the the uh, the heat cycle over the ocean, etc., etc., Chazal want us to believe here that Mashiv Murid Ageshem. Yes, the world naturally dries up, but God brings water from His heaven and sprinkles it on the earth, and that's why it's in and that's why it's in this bracha. So, the first bracha is, "Who is God?" and the answer is. He is He to whom I, whom, whom I discover, whom I find, who I have a relationship with. And then we ask, and what is God? And the answer is, God is He who is not part of my world, not part of the world of nature, but can, at will, overturn it and put it on its head. And then I will go and daven. Of course, there's one more bracha before we get to the heart of davening. That will be Bukat And that will be next week's bracha.